Hi, I'm Eddie, and I want to regenerate the ozone layer. It's, uh, it's been something of interest to me since uh, the second grade. Uh, it's a long story, but I've been working on it for a long time, and I finally came up with a solution that's both economically friendly for all of us, environmentally essential, and uh, spiritually, I think of it as participation and creation. When I was in the second grade, I was already concerned about smoke uh, getting into the atmosphere. Uh, preschool, I remember seeing a school bus drive by when I was on my hands and knees looking at grass. And here goes this school bus driving by the front yard and a puff of smoke comes out the tailpipe. Uh, in the late 50s, they didn't have exhaust systems like we do today. And it just seemed like something was wrong to me. It didn't make sense that, that we were doing that. Nobody was thinking about it. So... Uh, we had these brand new books the teacher distributed out to the students in the class. I remember my English book. She said, now, this is replacing very old books. They've been around for like nine or ten years, and this is the first time we're getting new books. Do not mark up the books. Well, I ended up drawing in the back inside cover of the book a picture of a little house with two windows, two bushes, a walkway, a roof, a chimney, and smoke coming out of the top. And in the top left was the sun. I, uh, I drew the atmosphere like circles because I was thinking about molecules. I knew the atmosphere was full of molecules. And I was trying to figure out how to get that smoke to properly uh, disseminate into the atmosphere. And I couldn't do it. I was not convinced that it was okay to be letting smoke into the atmosphere and uh, this has kind of been uh, something that's been going on uh, inside me, always thinking about atmospheric chemistry all my life. In 1967, during Expo 67, uh, which was a Canadian World's Fair, I was in the fifth grade. And I remember in Life magazine reading an article about a pilot flying high up in the atmosphere, and he noticed a pollution cloud. And he recalls in the article that he remembers flying through the atmosphere at those altitudes when that pollution cloud wasn't there. Again, revitalizing my concerns. And then in 1987, when President Reagan uh, was in office, uh, on, on a hot, sunny day, I was outside raking uh, the yard when the sun felt different. And it was very penetrating. And it was about two in the afternoon and I looked over at the maple tree on the yard and I watched the leaves right in front of my eyes just wilt. You know, the portion of the bulb of the leaves of the tree that was facing the sun directly just wilted. Well, that tree never recovered and died and didn't come back the next year. It was shortly after that that I heard in the news once that, in fact, 20% of the maple trees from Switzerland to California had perished as a result of what happened that day. So I got concerned. I thought everyone in the government had it under control, you know, and these are things beyond me. But truth of the matter is, it wasn't under control. And it was the ozone layer had reached a, an all-time low, and uh, the radiation was 
making its way down to the surface at deadly doses. And people at the time, more people got cancer of all kinds and even died of cancer as a result of that failure at the ozone layer for those moments. And it was very alarming to me. So I reached out, you know, I, I called up the director of the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado, and a very fine gentleman, Bill Mankin. He was the guy that, uh, as I understand it, actually formed the National Center for Atmospheric Research. And he told me he flew over to the Antarctic and was shooting lasers into the atmosphere to measure uh, the ozone concentrations and to find the ozone hole itself. So he was a very well-established man, and he was on Life magazine. His idea of regenerating the ozone layer that he proposed, although he knew was not feasible, was to use uh, high-altitude balloons and carrying up bottles and releasing ozone into the ozone layer. But he knew it was impractical. So when I told him what I wanted to do was uh, shine light down from space that carries the same photons, water balloons, I like to call them, with energy in them, uh, down into the atmosphere to produce ozone the way it's done by the sun, he thought it was brilliant. And he helped me and he gave me formulas and he explained exactly what's going on in the ozone layer. He even did the calculations and told me the energy requirements I considered solar panels, but it would look like a moon up there, okay? So uh, I looked at batteries, and at the time, um, from 19, I think it was 37, uh, General Electric SP100 program, they were making million-watt batteries that for a year could continuously have an output of a million watts. So when I looked at that battery and I looked at the deficit, I knew I was going to need 400 battery-powered satellites put into space every day for a year. And that would do the job. The efficiency of the light, you know, was a factor. You know, you get a million watts out, maybe you get uh, 50,000 usable watts type of a thing. You had to do the calculations. So problem was pointed out to me that the shuttle program, uh, NASA's shuttle program at the time, um, the shuttles burned 272 million pounds of liquid oxygen just to blast off like a bottle rocket and get one satellite in space. Maybe you can get two little ones up there, but point is that logistically was not feasible. And there lied the dilemma. I had to think of an engine that would get us up there and not burn liquid oxygen. Years went by. I raised my family, my children, made my way as an American. And only recently, very recently, have I actually finished an engine design that requires the burning of no liquid oxygen, has modulating control, would allow a vehicle to take off on a runway and under throttling control, be able to accelerate to speeds where it could just glide into space because we could go so fast in the atmosphere that it just wouldn't burn off the speed required to get out to the altitudes we want. And obviously the engines could be sized based on payloads. So I figure a fleet of 120 vehicles, each capable of carrying 10 satellites, I could launch 40 of these vehicles a day and put my 400 satellites up into the space. 
but I have to do it every single day for a year to get enough energy to regenerate the planet's ozone layer. So with current shuttle technologies at $2 billion per shuttle, obviously 120 vehicles as such, cost could be compared to be the same, would be $240 billion. But because the life expectancy of the vehicle is 20 years, that would be $12 billion a year. Now, the satellites, I figure, and this is me figuring for sure, that if I'm buying or making 400 satellites a day, every single day over the course of the year, that's like one a minute at an automotive assembly plant, I put a price tag on them for half a million dollars each. So that would be $73 billion for the satellites every year. So 73 and 12 is $85 billion a year to regenerate the ozone layer and prevent extinction. When I compare that number, the vastness of that number, $85 billion, I'd like you to think about how far away the sun is from the earth. It's 93 million miles away. Now, if I was to convert a dollar into a mile, think how far 93 million miles away is. There's two planets between us and the sun. And that 93 million miles is 9.3% of a billion dollars. So billion is a real big number. So 85 billion dollars a year is a lot of money. And that is only 8.5% of a trillion dollars. So with today's current economics, where people seem to think that a trillion is a lot of money, I think that would put us halfway across the galaxy, if not out of the galaxy. So I feel that the $85 billion in this day and age is a very user-friendly price to uh, regenerate the ozone layer. Uh, The technology is here right now. The jobs are here right now. And we just have to have the will of the people want to do what I call earth maintenance. I like to think of it, and I know because I know it is, it's also participation in creation. But we'll get into that later. What I'd like to tell you now is just what's going on with ozone. I mean, a lot of people really don't even understand what a CFC is. Well, it's an acronym for chlorofluorocarbon. But I don't know how many people really know what chlorofluorocarbon is. I mean, you want to take a guess or should I tell you? It's chlorine. Okay, that's all it is. And you know how chlorine gets absorbed in your water so easily in your swimming pool? It's a fact. Well, we've saturated, not only saturated, but we've super saturated our atmosphere with chlorine gas. Now, for those of you who'd like to know what I just said a little easier, saturation, it's like putting sugar in your coffee. You can make it sweeter. You put a little more, it gets a little sweeter. Eventually, if you put too much sugar in, the coffee just can't hold any more sugar. It's as sweet as it's ever going to get. So that extra sugar sits on the bottom of the cup. And if you keep putting more in, even more sugar sits on the bottom of the cup. So it's that layer of sugar on the bottom of the cup that we call supersaturated. 
So the coffee itself is saturated and the leftover is the supersaturated. Now, chlorine in the form of gas is what we've placed into the atmosphere. And we've supersaturated the atmosphere. From the top of the atmosphere to the deepest hole you can dig, all that space is holding as much chlorine gas in it as it's possible. And in fact, there's so much supersaturation that because chlorine gas is the lightest gas in our atmosphere, it's not sitting on the ground level. It's actually on the top of our atmosphere. That is what the top of our atmosphere is. It's chlorine gas. So I'm going to tell you something about chlorine gas. Chlorine gas molecules have 200,000 isotopes. Okay, what's an isotope? It's more than why does it matter how many isotopes it has. An isotope permits chlorine gas to interact in certain conditions with other molecules. And when the chemical reaction is over, it loses one isotope. So now, how does that relate to the ozone layer? Because our atmosphere is supersaturated with chlorine gas and there is moisture in our atmosphere, all that moisture in the atmosphere has, is contaminated with chlorine. It's chlorinated water. Even the rain on your windshield when you're driving is chlorinated water. There's no avoiding it. Okay? Now, another thing. Every night at 30,000 feet, it gets pretty cold wherever you are in the world. And a lot of ice forms at 30,000 feet during the darkness of night. And in the morning when the sun comes out, that ice melts. And that's natural. It's been going on for the life of the planet or life of the ozone layer. Okay, it's just the way the atmosphere works. It's just something that happens in the atmosphere to say. But the ozone layer is at 30,000 feet. And because the water that is freezing at night is chlorinated, that sets the stage to destroy the ozone. So in the morning, when the sun comes out and that chlorinated ice melts in the presence of ozone, the ozone and the chlorine react. And in the reaction, the ozone molecule is destroyed and the chlorine molecule reforms minus one isotope. So because the chlorine has 200,000 isotopes, it's destined to destroy 200,000 molecules of ozone. So that's 200,000 to one. Now, knowing that our atmosphere is chlorinated and there's a belt of pure chlorine gas on the top of the planet, we're virtually looking at tens of thousands of years before all that chlorine has expelled all of its 200,000 isotopes per molecule and can then no longer destroy the ozone layer. The good part about that is, with my business plan for us, is that we have jobs guaranteed for tens of thousands of years. We can bank on it. That's the economic benefit of this project. And, and, and as I said earlier, it's really not such a bad price given today's uh, spending. That is the chemistry of the atmosphere. The solution I gave you with the, um, although I didn't describe the details of the engine, it is there. 
and we can do it. Some people are of the opinion that there's too many people in the world and that we have to be controlled and told what to do. I'm an American. I can think for myself, and I hope all the rest of my American patriots can. And I think we should do this. I do believe it's participation in creation. I don't know if I mentioned yet how coral actually created the oxygen to begin with, but coral learned in the days when the volcanoes were erupting and spewing sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere. In time, the sulfur dioxide was settling into the oceans. And there was two deadly radiations at the time. Because of those radiations, absolutely no life could exist above a column or in the first 12 inches of the surface of the oceans and the seas. It took the 12 inches to absorb those two deadly radiations. So coral underneath a foot of water took the sulfur dioxide and learned how to metabolize it. And in metabolizing the sulfur dioxide, it drew nourishment for itself. And it produced oxygen and lime. Coral, being an animal, quickly made limestone houses for itself. And the excess leftover lime was left to float in the ocean. And a funny thing happened. Maybe it wasn't by chance. When sulfur dioxide comes in contact, the sulfur dioxide that was falling into the water, when it came in contact with the lime, it turned into salt. So coral actually not only produced the oxygen in the oceans that led to the oxygen being in the atmosphere, but it salted our oceans. I call that participation in creation because with that, more life was able to be created. Now, coral made a couple of mistakes. Prior to coral, there was anaerobes, life forms that uh, live without oxygen. And they populated the oceans. And as the coral oxygenated the ocean, it was almost an extinction event for the anaerobes. There's a message in history of, of nature of this world in that, is that the coral didn't know it was harming the anaerobes. It's the nature of this world. When we hurt each other, we don't really realize that we're hurting each other. Take a vine as it grows up on a tree. The vine doesn't know that it's a tree and that it's climbing up in it and it's hogging the sunlight and could lead to the death of the tree, and in many cases it does. It's not that the vine was being bad or evil or sinning. It was its nature. That's what it does. It's a vine. So if I compare that to how we struggle and we make our mistakes, it makes me think first of the nature of how we think as people. I mean, probably the scientists knew right away, but nobody was listening at the time. Nobody wanted to listen because every time we come up with something good, somebody's got something to say bad about it. Why can't we just do what we want, right? And, uh, but at the end of the day, you know, most of us didn't know anything about the ozone layer in those days before I was born. And we wrecked it. And that's on us. But it also teaches us not to blame ourselves. We can't change the nature of how we think because we are a part of nature and the nature of this world as it is created. What we can do is we can identify that 
put the light on the subject so we can see clearly and obviously what our next best step is to do. And that's to join in like all of our brethren life forms here on this world and get involved in creation. Not that we create, but that we participate in creation. And we can free up our minds of the feeling that, you know, the human race is so negative and bad for this world that some of us don't like ourselves too much as, as a race. And they think we deserve to go up and smoke. But the truth is, it's just our learning curve. And we're just getting started. And we're going to join our brethren. We will take our seat in participation in creation. And, and the things we will be able to do will be so tremendous that it's exciting. And we're going to start with regenerating the ozone layer. I'm not going to tell people what to do. I'm not going to say what economy can survive and what has to go. I'm not going to tell any industrialists that they're in the wrong business. This isn't an addition to. And if it leads to businesses in the future that uh, outdate older businesses, but is still something strong for everybody, they'll move naturally in that direction. I don't have to force them. I know we're on the world global pressure and like a tidal wave and we're a sandbar and everybody's piling up on top of us right now, but we can think for ourselves. And if you have a better business plan, I'd really love to hear it. But I'll leave you with this thought. Not only will we regenerate in the ozone layer for tens of thousands of years, but we'll be mining the asteroids and building industrial plants like the rings around Saturn in geocentric orbits, and we will be able to expand Earth's atmosphere. Life is good. Life is what you make it. We can do anything. We could turn this world into a garden. We could be like the DNA on a single-cell planet or creation. The universe could be our, a womb. And nine months from now, in real time, as far as the planet's concerned, a baby could form. Life is beautiful. There are more jobs available right now than there are people on the planet. We just have to get busy. We need our leadership to get busy. I don't blame our leadership for their errors. I don't believe that all leaders that we have that we call leaders are actually leaders. I don't think they can see the road where we need to go, let alone get us there. But uh, there is a road and we are going to get there. And I think America should band together, tell our leaders, this is what we wanna do. This is our country, we can think for ourselves. And if you won't capitulate, step aside. But there is no way you are gonna be able to block us. I believe in lead. Follow, get out of the way, but don't block. I am an American veteran. I was in the Air Force, proudly. My father was at Guadalcanal in the engine room of a steamship with the troop transports. Although those fleet battleships were lost, they protected those troop transport ships. From that, I took in my industry of getting into mechanical engineering and sales and I was constantly having to look at service conditions. And when I look at the service conditions and the state of our planet right now, I considered the spirit. I considered all of our ancestors. I considered all of our neighbors, our planet, 
our solar system and our faiths and my faith as well. Okay. Thank you for listening. This is Ed signing out. <laughs>